Sometimes when you're reading the New Testament, you'll find that a New Testament author will quote from the Old Testament. John in his gospel, in John one twenty three says, He said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And that's a quote, or at least in part, from Isaiah 43, which says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Sometimes New Testament writers may not quote an Old Testament passage, but they'll allude to it making use of some of the words or a concept in that Old Testament passage. For example, in 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That alludes to Psalm 32.5, which says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So we have quotations, we have allusions, and then sometimes a New Testament author, while not quoting or alluding to an Old Testament passage, calls to mind an Old Testament passage. For in 1 John, in our passage today, I think John does that. So let's go ahead and read our passage, 1 John three, nineteen through 24. By this we shall know that we are the truth and reassure, reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us to do. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him, and by this we know he abide, that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. I think, John, and a lot of commentators uh, believe this as well, I think John was thinking about Deuteronomy, chapter 15, 7 through 11. Let's read that. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him, and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, unless there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, The seventh year, the year of release, is near, and your eye look grudgingly upon your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And you cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never be, or never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. So this portion of Deuteronomy is talking about regulations for what was called the year of Sabbath, or is in the passage here, the year of release. And the year of release was that every seven years in Israel, any debts that had been incurred were forgiven. This passage contains... I think a few points that are pertinent to our study. First point in verses 7 and 8 is that if someone is poor and they have a need, you should do what you can to fulfill that need, specifically in the passage to lend generously to that person. The next point in verse 9 is that not to entertain a wicked thought, that in the case of Deuteronomy, that that, seven, that seventh year is close and that if you lend, the debt will be released and you may not get your money back. What he's saying is don't rationalize away the need. 
The third point in verse 10 is that when you see a need, you should do what you can, including lending, to fulfill the need because this is what the Lord wants you to do. And God will bless you in all your work. And then the final point is that there will always be poor among you. God commands that you open your hand to your brother. As we go through our passage today, let's keep this passage from Deuteronomy in mind. Let's pray. Father God, you desire us to love one another. And John, in his letter, spends a lot of time talking about loving one another. And I pray, Father, that you give us the heart to love one another. Give us the the mind that looks out for the needs of our brothers and sisters, and when we can, to be able to take care of those needs. And cause us, Father, to remember that in loving one another, we're doing what you have called us to do and what you did for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Convincing the heart. 1 John three nineteen through 21. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. This passage continues John's thoughts from the previous passage when he's talking about loving one another. He calls on believers to love one another out of the love that God has given them and has taught them. The love he calls us to give is not to be out of a sense of obligation or a sense of trying to measure up to God's standards, but out of a sense of gratitude for the love that God has shown us. And John just said in verse 18 that we should love one another in deed and in truth. The idea of loving in truth, I think, is the, the act that in the act of love, with an, that we should act with an attitude of love as opposed to some other motivation. That idea is addressed in the Deuteronomy passage, where God says to give out of an open hand and not grudgingly. And then in verse 19, John says this, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. This is another diagnostic that John gives us. It's a way for for reassuring our hearts, he says. And that phrase there is a Greek idiom, and it's probably better to understand it as saying to be convinced or persuade our heart. John is offering us a way for us to be convinced that our hearts are right in the context of loving one another. And John seems to know that there are times that we may be unsure of ourselves or that we may even deceive ourselves or attempt to rationalize away a need, to rationalize away out of loving one another. So John gives us two scenarios, both of which find parallels in the Deuteronomy passage. First John 3.20. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. So this first scenario is, scenario is when our heart condemns us. The parallel in the Deuteronomy passage is in verse 9, where it says, Take care lest there be any, an unworthy thought in your, in your heart, and you say, The seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cries to the Lord against you, and be guilty of sin. There are times when a need is made known, made known to us, and we don't meet the need. Someone needs a ride to church, and we ignore it. Someone needs a meal, and we say, I'm sure someone else will take care of that. We hear of a need and convince ourselves that the need is beyond our ability or our time. Or, what may be most cynical, we see a need, 
And we self-righteously point out that need to someone else and say, hey, there's a need over here. We need to take care of that. Actually, you need to take care of that. I'm not suggesting that every need that we become aware of is only yours to meet. We are a part of the body of Christ here. And one reason God has put us together in this local part of his body is that we can meet the needs of one another. But remember, John is dealing with the heart. And it's not just the heart, but it's the heart in which the Holy Spirit dwells. When a need is made known to you, it's the Holy Spirit that's prompting you, prompting your heart to meet a need. The problem for us is when the Holy Spirit prompts us, sometimes we don't, we don't respond. When Nancy and I were still in California, one evening I wanted to uh, take her out to dinner, and me being a great guy, and you all know, of course, that I'm a great guy. Uh, I wanted to show her a good time. I wanted to take her out to a special place. So I took her to Bob's Big Boy. Pat myself on the back. There. Did they have Bob's Big Boys out here? Yes. Ever? Did they? Okay, good. You know, if you know that, you know it's a hamburger joint, basically. <laughs> so we drove and to the restaurant, and we arrived there, and we noticed that a woman and a boy were sitting on the curb in front of the restaurant. Didn't think much of it. We went inside, had our dinner. And when we came out, the lady and that child were still there. Didn't think much about it still. We got in the car, and what I describe as a gentle ping went off in my heart. That's what I call the Holy Spirit prompting. But I ignored it. And I drove home. And all the way that home, all the way home, that soft pinging kept going off in my heart until finally, as we pulled into the driveway of our house, I couldn't ignore it anymore. And I turned to Nancy. I said, Nancy, we got to go back. I don't know what's going on, but we've got to go back and see what we might be able to do. And so we pulled out of our driveway and drove back to the restaurant. And full disclosure here, as we were driving back, I was hoping, and yes, I was praying that the lady and that child wouldn't be there anymore. I'll finish that story later. When you think about meeting the needs of someone, we often think about the parable of the Good Samaritan, and I think John probably had that in mind as well. And I'm not going to go through the parable, but I want to focus for a moment on the priest in that parable. You know what happened. Uh, there was a man who was going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and as uh, sometimes happened on that journey, he got beaten and robbed, left for dead. And the priest comes along, and he sees that fellow laying on the road there, and goes to the other side to avoid the situation. And I'm quite sure that priest knew Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 11, but he ignored it, and he ignored the man. And in the priest's mind, I'm sure he had some very uh, important, very godly things to do that he couldn't take the time to stop. As I said, I think John had this parable in mind when he said that sometimes our heart con- hearts condemn us, as I expect that priest heart condemned him. Our hearts condemn us when we ignore that Holy Spirit prompting, or we ignore or rationalize away the need. And I think we likely all know what a condemning heart feels like. It's that tug on the conscience that repeatedly reminds us that we should have done something. A tugging goes on for a while as we try to go about our lives. It tugs while we're having a meal and 
It tugs while we try to concentrate on work, or it tugs when we are playing with the kids, or when we try to sleep. Eventually, that tugging will subside. And I think it is in this case that we realize that God is greater than our hearts, and that he knows everything. God knows when we ignore or rationalize a need away. And God is stronger than our hearts. I think what that's referring to is that God is able to bring up that failure on our part that we were prompted about. And it's not just our heart, of course. It's the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. But even in this, there is hope. And I think this is part of what John was referring to. That God is greater than our hearts points us into, in two directions. First, God knows that while we may fool ourselves in our rationalizations, he is not fooled. And he still will do, deal with us. And usually he does that gently. Secondly, as God deals with our unconvinced heart, he leads us not to condemnation but to repentance in order that we should receive his forgiveness. And in that forgiveness, we are freed from guilt and we are freed from the condemning of our hearts and freed to follow the prompting of the Holy Spirit the next time. It is in this, this confession and forgiveness, that our heart is convinced and persuaded that we are of the truth. How could we not be when God works with us this way. I want to think a little bit more uh, about this parable. And I don't think we can leave this without touching on why we don't meet needs sometimes. And I suppose there are many reasons, some of which may sound good. But I think that the real reason is that when we meet a need, it's going to cost us. Think about that priest again. What would have cost him to meet that need? certainly would have been inconvenient for him. It would have cost him time. Probably would have made him late to his next appointment. It would have cost him effort. If the priest had met this, this need of this man, he would have had, find a, had to find a way, like the Good Samaritan did, to get him up off the road and get him into the town so that he could be taken care of. That would have taken a lot of effort. It may have cost the priest spiritually, the uh, purity laws in the Old Testament probably uh, would have meant for him that if he began to help this man and touched him, got blood on his hands and that kind of thing, that it would have made him unclean. And being unclean itself was not a sin, but it did require a uh, ritual, a purity ritual for the person to become clean again. And it would have cost him money. We know that. In a congregation in California many years ago, there was a lady who had a blood disease, and I don't know the type of disease it was, but it was serious, and the only treatment option she had was to receive transfusions of blood plasma. So a call was put out to the church for people who were willing to donate plasma, and I said I would do it. And I was thrilled at how people said, oh, Mike, that's fantastic. I'm really glad you did that. I really want to thank you for your sacrifice. I didn't hadn't sacrificed anything <laughs> at that point. But I liked the pats on the back. <clears throat> and then the call came. And I hesitated big time. The lady came on the phone and said, Hi, is this Mr. Tucker? I said, Yes, it is. Hi, this is so-and-so from the UCLA Medical Center. Uh, we need you to come down to donate plasma. And I said, um, um, You know, I'm really busy um, right now. Maybe could we put this off to Friday? 
And she said, no, no, uh, this lady needs this transfusion right away. So we need you to come down. And I said, well, uh, I, listen, I know there are people who signed up to do this. Maybe you can call one of them. And she said, no, sir, we really need you to come down. I hate people who heard that insistent. <laughs> so I went down. But as I was driving down to the UCLA Medical Center, and the whole time I was there, my heart was condemning me, not because, or, or I should say because, I was not doing this with an attitude of love. It was an attitude of grudging obligation. But thankfully, God got a hold of me and drew me to repentance and forgiveness. And this so-called act of love of mine cost me. It cost me time. It took several hours out of my life. I had things to do. <laughs> it did cost me money. I had to pay for gas. So I praise God that I didn't have to pay the gas prices we're paying today. It certainly, there was an amount of fear involved. I wasn't entirely sure at the time what the procedure would involve. Yeah, it was certainly inconvenient. And it cost me embarrassment. And uh, the reason it cost me embarrassment is because, well, let me tell you the procedure. They put, they put me in a nice, really nice leather chair, very soft, very you know, reclined, and all this stuff. And they took a needle, big needle, <laughs> stuck it in this arm. And then they took another needle, big needle, stuck it in this arm. And the procedure was is that they would take blood out of this arm, they'd run it through a machine which separated the plasma, and then they'd return the rest of the blood products to this arm. Well, it, and that process would take 45 minutes, maybe an hour. Um, but there was a problem. They couldn't get it to go back into my arm. So they removed the big needle from this arm. Uh, and they said, well, sir, the way we're going to have to do this is we're going to take some blood out of your arm here, we'll run it through the machine, separate the plasma, and then return the blood products to this arm. And so the procedure is the same, but because they couldn't put it, the blood products back in the other arm, um, it took a lot longer. It took about two and a half hours. Uh, and that wasn't the reason for the embarrassment. The reason for the embarrassment was, well, um, every time I give blood, I faint. And I fainted. I don't know what, if you've fainted or you've had that experience or what your experience is like, but when I faint, uh, of course, you know, I can't move anything. Can't see because my eyes are closed. Can't talk. But I can hear everything. And so I fainted. And I know and I know I have fainted. It's such a weird feeling. I know I fainted, but I can't do a thing about it. But anyway, one of the nurses came. I could hear her talking. And she said, she goes up to me and she goes, Ooh, I think he's fainted. <laughs> and then she goes, come over here. <laughs> Talking to her colleagues. And it must have been five or six of them. And they're all standing around. Me, oh, man, yeah, he did faint. Oh, look how pale he is. <laughs> you know, they're kind of snickering and laughing. And, and if I could have moved, I would have hit somebody, you know, but I couldn't move. So it cost me embarrassment. <laughs> Loving one another may not be very costly many times, but it also costs you something. Acting out of a grudging attitude like I did makes that cost only a burden. 
not acting still cost you, at least in a spiritual sense, in your relationship with God. And certainly while you can repair the relationship with God through his grace and forgiveness, but that's a, that cost we shouldn't have to bear. It's better to bear the cost of meeting a need. That's what Christ did. His sacrifice for us, meeting our need, cost him everything, including being separated from the Father. But that's what God calls from us. The attitude that Christ had in meeting our need is the same attitude we are called to have. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. In being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. A convinced heart. 1 John 3.21 Now I said there were two scenarios John wanted us to look at when we seek to love one another to love one another by meeting needs. And the first, of course, is when our heart condemns us, which we just talked about. The second is when our hearts do not condemn us as we act in loving one another. First John three twenty one, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence for God. If we respond to the prompting of the Holy Spirit to meet a need and we meet the need with an open, an open hand, the Holy Spirit in our hearts will commend us. We will be convinced and persuaded in our hearts before God. The Deuteronomy passage speaks to this as well. In verse 10, you shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and all that you undertake. So, back to my Bob's Big Boy story. Um, We pulled into the restaurant, and... In spite of all my prayers, righteous as they were, the lady and that boy were still there. And I parked the car, and at that point I finally said, Okay, Lord, what do you want me to do? (coughs) The Lord didn't answer. And I didn't really know what to do. I didn't have a plan or or a a procedure to, uh, to follow, so I got out of the car, I went up to the lady, and I, and I said, ma'am, I, I've noticed that you've been sitting here quite a while. Is there anything I can help you with? Is there anything I can do for you? And she, she didn't really respond. She said, no, 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 no. And uh, I pressed it a little bit and, and tried to get her to talk to me, and she, she really wouldn't talk to me at all. And so at that point, I had a choice. I, said, I could have said, well, uh, she doesn't want any help, so I'll go home. Um, but I didn't do that. I went back to the car, asked Nancy to come with me to talk to the lady, and she did. And, and the lady finally opened up and told us that the reason they were there is that her husband or boyfriend, whoever he was, they'd gone to the restaurant <coughs> um, and got in a fight, which apparently they did quite often. And then he, in anger, left, took her purse, took everything she had. She had no money. There weren't cell phones at the time. And she was in abject fear because she didn't know what to do. 
So because of Nancy, we convinced her to go ahead and come home with us that we would call her family, which lived about two and a half hours away. <clears throat> and so we did that. We got her home and put her son on the couch and covered him with a blanket. He went to sleep and had a chance to talk with the lady for a little while. And I did share the gospel with her, and she didn't respond at the time. And uh, we had called her family, and they came down eventually. They were very appreciative of what we did. And I don't know the rest of that lady's story, um, but I think God touched her life that night. But God blessed us that night in that act of love. For John, the first blessing we receive when we have... When we carry out an act of love of meeting someone's need, we have confidence before God. And God blesses in the very act of love, in the very act of meeting a need, as God did with Nancy and I that night. The work God blesses is the work of meeting needs. God is in it. But there's more. First John three twenty two through 24. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of, the, of, the, of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know, that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Another diagnostic. Loving one another is not isolated from the other aspects of our walk with God. I call it a package deal. The confidence we have in God as we love one another brings more than just confidence. The confidence goes to prayer. John goes on to say that we will receive what we ask because we keep his commandments. And in doing that, we, uh, we do what pleases him. Keeping his commandments, of course, is to love one another. And I know that some may be thinking that, okay, well, I try to respond to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. I try to meet needs when I'm made aware of them. And, and, I, and I have a good relationship with God, but God doesn't always answer my prayers. Consider what John is saying. As we act in love, we gain confidence before God. Because God blesses our acts of love, love which leads us to confidence in prayer. And as we grow in confidence in prayer, we will grow in learning what God wants, and thus what to pray for. The meeting of needs out of love, the confidence in God that in prayer works together. And as I said, it's a package deal. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on prayer here. Caleb did that a few weeks ago where he devoted a whole sermon on prayer. And he taught about the nature of prayer. The title of the sermon was Breathe. See, Caleb, I remember what you say. It was a good sermon on prayer. And if you missed it, I really encourage you to go to the Grace Wife Grace Life website to check it out. And so Caleb taught quite a bit about prayer. We aren't touching everything about prayer here today. But for example, there are other teachings about prayer. First John 5, 14 and 15. John says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, we hears he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So the teaching on prayer here is that if we ask according to God's will, and I would suggest to you that as we meet one another's needs in love, and as we gain confidence in God, and as we gain confidence in prayer, we will learn more and more what God's will is. And there's one more thing I want to mention about prayer here. 
It's something I heard someone say a long time ago. He said that prayer was a process of aligning our wills with God's will. The more we pray, the more we carry out God's will, like loving one another, as with, as Deuteronomy says, an open hand. And as we do that, the more we learn what God's will is. And the more we pray what God's will is, and the more we will receive what we pray for. And so John mentions the commandments that we need to follow. And in verse 23, 23, he tells us what those commandments are, to believe in the name of Jesus Christ and to love one another. It's not very different from what Jesus said about loving one another in God's commandments. Matthew twenty-two thirty-four through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, he said, which is the great commandment of the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And I would suggest there's one more bit of confidence that we gain in all of this. As we keep God's commandments, we are abiding in God, as John says. And God abides in us. Loving in one another is not a way to gain God's favor. It's the demonstration of God's abiding in us, and we in him. In this conference, we know God abides in us because we have the Holy Spirit who God gave us. That prompting, that praying, that pinging Holy Spirit who resides in us, who leads us and empowers us to love one another. Before we finish, I want to say a note about generosity. In 2 Corinthians, Paul was dealing with the Corinthians about a collection that he was gathering from the churches he planted for the saints in Judea to mitigate their poverty. The Corinthians had initially responded well, but it seems they did not follow up from their initial desire to give this gift of love for their brothers and sisters in Judea. And in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 15, Paul says this. It's a lengthy passage, but bear with me. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of their affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so by his poverty, that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it, doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For the readiness is there, 
is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you should be burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Paul, of course, is talking here about money meeting needs. But there are many, many needs that are not filled by money. I suggest that most of the needs of the body are not financial in nature. Just a few days ago, Nancy was prompted by the Holy Spirit through Facebook to call a person who was hurting. I wasn't privy to the conversation, but I know the call provided support and care and comfort in the midst of that person's distress. As we love one another, we have an example of generosity, the generosity of love that we can show to one another. Paul reminds us of the example of Jesus Christ, who was rich, but willingly, by his grace, became poor for us, that we would become rich. We are rich in the grace that Jesus Christ gave us. John calls his readers and us to be rich toward our brothers and sisters as we love one another couple things to think about here. First, when the Holy Spirit prompts, respond. I've spoken of that gentle inner prompting that I call pinging of the Holy Spirit. But the prompting of the Spirit can be internal or external. On Thursday, just this past Thursday, I was with some people, and one of them, we were just talking together, and one of them mentioned, most not specifically to me, mentioned the name of a brother. And the Holy Spirit used that in me to prompt me to go visit that brother. And I did. That was good. As a side note, I was talking with Caleb the other day, and we were discussing meeting needs. And Caleb said, and I agree that most of the needs we can fill, most of the opportunities we have to love one another, love one another are not big. They don't require huge costs. Occasionally they do, but not usually. In meeting a need... Demonstrating love to one another can be as simple as a phone call or a hug or a cup of coffee with someone. It could be a ride somewhere. It could be a visit. Many other things. Take Christ's attitude of giving yourself generously. That's the second point. Be generous as you love one another. And then take the joy. Take joy in the confidence you have before God as you love one another. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word and your time, and thank you for the example of Christ in this. Thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit to be with us and to minister to us and to prompt us to love one another. May we we respond to those promptings. And as we do, Father, may we uh, bask in the blessing of having confidence in you and confidence in prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.